This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles. Welcome to Season 3 of Smarter Cars. This is your host, Michelle Kairouz. Today we're talking about parking policy and its impact on cities with Lauren Matern, a principal at Nelson Nygaard, a transportation and consulting firm. Previously, Lauren served as manager of parking policy and technology at the SFMTA. Lauren, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Great. Could you start by telling us a little bit about what you do today and your background in parking policy? Yes, I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of folks are wondering, how does one become so invested in parking policy? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I caught the parking bug um, back in about 2009 when I was hired to come on board with SF Park under uh, the leadership of Jay Premise, um, and that was my first step into that world. A lot of people thought I was crazy <laughs> for leaving <laughs> the broader city planning world to go focus on this topic, um, but I knew I knew how fun it was going to be. Um, mm-hmm. So I spent about six years plus over at SF Park, which is where I cut my teeth on this stuff, and um, that was sort of building up to the pilot going live in 2011. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. Um, so that was sort of in, just to get people primed on where, what that's all about. That was one of the first big experiments in demand responsive pricing in the country. So implementing some ideas that in parking management that had been around in academia but hadn't been tried in a big way. So it was an exciting pilot. And these days I'm at Nelson Nygaard, which is a transportation planning firm that is multimodal in nature and has a strong parking practice as well. Great. So let's let's talk about parking policy for those who aren't familiar with it. I think maybe we can divide it into talking about curb parking, which is on the street, and then maybe we'll talk about off-street parking, like parking lots and garages. Uh, but starting with street parking... I know Donald Shoup from UCLA wrote a book many years ago called The High Cost of Free Parking, which uh, people should read, though it is about 800 pages. Uh, but he recommends that cities charge more for parking on the street. Can you explain you know, why it matters, whether street parking is cheap or free or, or more expensive? Yes, and Dr. Shoup was really the the godfather of a lot of the most interesting ideas in parking management that are being implemented today. And kudos to him for diving into a really complicated topic and trying to do it for us all. So uh, for on-street parking or city-managed parking, um, his his, uh, research and, and writing has really been about um, the overall incentives and and what signals we're sending to folks about how to drive and park in our cities. And um, it's not necessarily that the price needs to be higher. It just the price needs to be the right price. So some of our relative pricing and incentives have been off in, let's say, most cities. 
and a lot are really um, catching up and doing really interesting work these days. So what happens if your pricing is wrong, as you point out, if you're, if you know, what happens if you get it wrong and you're not charging enough or you're charging too much or how how does that affect um, cities? Mm -hmm. The basic idea is that you want to charge the right there's some parking available for those who need to drive. And if you charge not enough or it's free, you'll have a ton of demand and a lot of extra circling and frustration. And of course, on the opposite end, if you charge way too much, not enough people you know, would use it. It would be underutilized and kind of a waste of space. So the idea with demand responsive pricing is to get the price right. So you're actually managing toward a goal of one or two open spaces per block or the equivalent of that for a garage. And a really common um, a really common pattern is that in a lot of cities up until recently, and many still, uh, off-street parking would actually be priced a lot higher than on-street parking. And the problem with that is that on-street parking is the absolutely most desirable parking in most cities and most downtowns. So you're kind of creating a mismatch between what you want folks to do um, and what they're actually doing, which is ideally you'd have them seek out off-street parking, get off the street, go find a space. And unfortunately, most pricing is set up to do the opposite, which is folks like I would do the same and if I was in their shoes are circling for the cheapest space that's most convenient to them. So the problem with that is it leads to quite a bit of extra circling. Um, there's a few studies on how much and it leads to a lot of frustrated right right and left turn movements, a lot of frustrated drivers. That's a problem for people biking and walking as well and just creates some unnecessary driving in our most congested areas. So is cruising that big of a deal? I think for most of us, you know, we're sort of nodding along and thinking of um, a lot of Seinfeld episodes and other things that, uh, you know, talk about kind of the American way of you know, circling around till you find exactly the right parking spot and people fighting over parking spots and having that be uh, kind of the way it is in cities that you have to circle and maybe you drive past the restaurant and then you you, you drive around in concentric circles trying to find the best spot. Can you explain <laughs> why it is that that is so bad and like how much of a problem it is? I, I think a lot of people may not really get that. Yeah, and, you know, it's not necessarily a huge challenge everywhere, but it sure is in a lot of places. And so I know, for for example, back when I used to live in San Francisco, I was once trying to drive to a restaurant and couldn't find a space in the whole neighborhood. And I have a very high toler- tolerance for walking, and I simply couldn't visit the businesses that I wanted to that evening. So not being able to find a space absolutely has some challenges for retailers, in especially kind of popular commercial districts with a lot of activity. So that's one problem. And then there are a series of other issues. Um, Most folks, the impact of circling for parking is a little bit invisible, um, but it really adds up. And so the studies uh, really show that it, it varies a lot by context, but it can be a pretty large portion of a city's overall uh, vehicle miles traveled and emissions in a downtown area can be from people circling for parking spaces. So it stacks up a lot of traffic where you want it the least. And like I said, that's just unnecessary 
miles traveled. It's not really serving anybody. And I think we've all seen the frustration in ourselves and in other drivers when we see them hunting for a space uh, and making a lot of extra turns or double parking or do some, doing something a little bit um, less safe than they should be to, to find a space and in that hyper-competitive environment. Yeah, and as you said, also like the the blocking of a lane at the point at which you're, you know, you're trying to pull into a spot or waiting for a spot, sometimes that congests traffic as well. So how did these issues lead to the SF Park program that you mentioned? Um, what were you trying to accomplish there? And um, how did you get started with it? Yeah, so, you know, every city has slightly different versions of the same story when it comes to parking management and curbside management. Um, in San Francisco, the program as a park was implemented by the San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency, which also happens to be the, the folks that are running transit. And so there was a little bit of a keener um, acknowledgement there of the impact of double parking and extra circling on transit operations. Um, that system has a lot of at-grade uh, transit. And so double parking, whether it's a commercial vehicle, a personal vehicle, an Uber, a Lyft, um, or just the extra circling that kind of builds up traffic in, in commercial corridors can notably slow down traffic. So those are some of the reasons why the agency decided to implement this program. And the, uh, the program was lucky enough to win a federal grant to try out these ideas and under some keen leadership, it was really set up to implement some of these big ideas from Dr. Shoup's idea uh, books and research and to wrestle it into reality, <laughs> which anyone on the implementation side, public or private sector, you know what a big gap that can be between an idea and what it takes to make it happen. So it was really a wonderful experience to kind of walk that path from idea to making this thing work on the, the mean, messy streets of a bigger city. Yeah. So what were um, the goals in terms of occupancy? I, my, my understanding is that rather than looking at parking and setting kind of a revenue goal, that you were, uh, that one of the changes was to look at the occupancy of spots. Um, what were your goals there? Yes, that's a good summary. Our goals were to create more open parking spaces consistently across the city. And so we had a lot of sub goals beneath it, but really our driving metric was creating available parking spaces. And that's important because that's what ultimately was going to reduce circling and all of the negative externalities that we just discussed. So we sort of took a, a little bit of a unique policy take on what the core goals were. A lot of programs have historically focused on turnover, so kind of getting as many cars per hour or per day to use a space. Mm. And we sort of took the stance that we really care about consistent availability because that's what um, the driving public cares about. Um, and that's a better measure of success and rolled out to all of the other benefits that we were hoping to see. And so some of the results that we saw, we did see that parking availability did improve across the pilot areas. It did become easier to find a space. 
um, we did see a reduction in vehicle miles traveled and thus greenhouse gas emissions. And what's interesting about that is that the average parking rate, meanwhile, was lowered overall. So some rates in the really busy areas that were the most popular in the city went up and some went down. And we also implemented this program tying together on-street parking spaces and off-street parking spaces to try to get the incentives to align more to get folks to use garages and boost utilization at those and move some of that circling uh, demand for parking off of our busy streets. So you were looking um, at the differential in price between the street parking and nearby garage parking and trying to minimize that difference in order to incentivize garage parking? Or how did you do that? Yeah, that's a good question. So like I said, in the most common scenario in U.S. cities, I would say, is that off-street parking, particularly public parking, tends to be a lot cheaper, or excuse me, off-street parking tends to be a lot more expensive than on-street parking, when in fact the demand and sort of the economic principles underlying that are reversed. So there's a lot of you know potential negative side effects with forcing folks to seek out cheaper parking on-street. And so we didn't necessarily have a stated goal that off-street parking needed to be cheaper, but we just set up consistent key performance metrics for both on- and off-street parking that work together. So that over time, as we measured demand, it started to even out our off-street parking became cheaper and on-street parking became more expensive if that was where demand took us in a particular pilot area. And what percentage of occupancy were you looking for um, in, in terms of the street parking? And how did you figure it out kind of by block or by neighborhood? How, how does that work? Mm-hmm. So we were seeking about 60 to 80% as the ideal. And um, that those percentages vary a little bit across programs based on what kind of technology and you're using to intake data to make those decisions. But the overall guiding light here is to have one or two open spaces per block. And we set up our whole system around that goal. In the case of SF Park, it's actually a very technology-centric, sophisticated program. We knew that parking was a huge issue and that it varied a lot block by block and by time of day and day of week in San Francisco. And so we set up our program accordingly to be quite detail-oriented. We deployed parking sensors and wireless parking meters, and we also built a data backend system with some technical partners to be able to measure what demand was actually doing and to make decisions about pricing over time. So we set up a program that was very data-intensive, very transparent, and truly let... um, new data drive decisions rather than politics or complaint. We tried to really think about what our goals were and how to get there um, and took advantage of this wonderful sensor data to help us make decisions. So the city uses an algorithm that pulls this sensor data in order to set rates rather than having to make kind of a political decision about what the rate should be in a particular neighborhood? Exactly, exactly. I think a lot of parking decisions have been pretty reflexive historically in a lot of cities um, based on kind of the latest political wins. 
And that's understandable because parking is a really tough issue. It's a really political issue. It's, it's hard to talk about because we all have our frustrations with it. But the truth is, is that it's one of the most important policy levers in all of our communities. And so whatever the goals are for how to manage it, getting to a place where you can really d- describe what those are and manage the system toward it is really important. And so that's what we try to do with SFARC. And what about uh, time limits on parking? I know for some of us, you know, one of the biggest frustrations is that you're parking on the street and there's a one hour limit because somebody thought, gee, if we put a one hour limit, then cars will turn over more and there'll be more business. But in fact, everything you want to do when you park there takes two hours or whatever. And so it just doesn't seem to work or you see people running out and feeding the meters. Um, And then you have this whole ecosystem around parking enforcement and meter maids coming around. So how did you approach time limits and what, what does the system look like? I agree with your take that they don't always seem very logical to users. And the SF Park program took a pretty radical approach. Um, and that's in considering that short time limits were really one of the mainstays of how cities were managing parking. And we took a different tack and thought that we don't really care how long folks are staying. I think that a lot of parking meter systems and management systems were designed in a kind of a different era, maybe when folks were taking a lot more short trips to specific corridors when headed home. But some of the ways that people access retail and entertainment uh, really does call for longer stays. And the last thing you want to do is chase out a customer who's hoping to stay for an extra hour to, to visit more local businesses. So we tried out a couple of different time limits to test this theory that you don't really need time limits to manage parking if you get the pricing right. So we had some pilot areas with no time limit at all and some with a four-hour time limit. And I think the results were, were great. I think one of the reasons that we see parking be a really contentious issue is that people have had bad experiences with short time limits and excessive enforcement. So by relaxing time limits, you're able to make it easier to avoid a parking ticket, which improves, I think, customer satisfaction. And, you know, I think ultimately people don't mind paying a little bit for parking, and they'd much rather do that than risk a very expensive ticket, which uh, in San Francisco is quite a hefty fine, and I know a lot of other cities so we tried to flip that paradigm. So we're really moving away from citation revenue toward just charging a fair data-driven price at the meter or in the garage. Right. And where does the revenue go um, when when there's metered parking on a street? Uh, does the revenue uh, go into some general city fund or does it stay in the neighborhood? And what are the politics around that? So in San Francisco, parking revenue goes toward transportation and toward transit operations, which is part of the same agency. So it's really reinvested back into the transportation system. But where that money goes varies a lot city by city or agency by agency. 
And I think it's a good question to dive into when we look at things like adjusting rates or implementing a demand responsive pricing policy. So Dr. Shoup has really promoted the concept of parking benefit districts, which basically suggests that uh, revenue should stay local. So if you're implementing paid parking in a, let's say, uh, a typical commercial district, that any excess revenue beyond what it takes to operate and enforce the meters should go back into some sort of reinvestment as near as possible to that corridor. And so some cities have set up structure around that to be able to accomplish it. It's not necessarily feasible everywhere. It does take some organizational setup, but I do think it's a wonderful idea and one that helps people understand that um, the goal of charging for parking should not be revenue generation, but really should be to create available spaces. Right. I think this kind of dynamic pricing um, was controversial when it was implemented in San Francisco. Have the politics on that shifted uh, since then? Are you seeing some political and cultural changes around the importance of street parking or, or less importance of street parking? Yes, I would say the politics have shifted quite a bit. So since the time that SF Park, since I left SF Park, um, most of the time I've been working in consulting here at Nelson Nygaard. And so I get the chance to work with different cities in diff very different contexts, uh, you know, from towns to small cities to the biggest cities to transit agencies. And the, I would say the overall acceptance of the ideas have really advanced. With the SF Park program, we definitely tried to share everything we learned. Um, and really make anything that we went through a little bit accessible and easier for other cities to tackle, learn from, and grow. And there have been several other cities who have done really interesting parking programs, and I think we're all learning and growing from each other. The politics are still tough around parking in a lot of areas. I think it's really contextual. I think the science of how it works is really um, widely understood and folks get that, but it doesn't mean that the challenges of explaining it and, and helping people get comfortable with change has become a simple task. I think we've learned a lot about um, what we think are important to making these types of parking projects more successful and really helping people understand what are some pretty wonky ideas around parking policy. We tried to walk the walk throughout the entire SF Park pilot to make it very depoliticized, to really prioritize transparency. We published the math on every rate adjustment we ever did, just so that people could know that they could go and check and see how decisions like city government are being made. And I think also one political challenge with parking policy has been our real lack of data. They are, I think most cities don't know how much parking they have. It's really tough to talk about, let alone know how, how it's utilized. So um, sort of systematically measuring, you know, how much parking we have, how it's used, what the outcomes are of these policy changes, I think that really goes a long way to helping people know what to expect when you start to implement some really important parking policies in different contexts. Yeah, I feel like the other thing that's 
changed in the world besides the education that you're talking about uh, among cities and people about parking theory. The other big change really is the introduction of of Uber and Lyft and TNCs. Um, And, you know, what I've seen in downtown San Francisco really is suddenly there's a lot more parking available in garages, et cetera, because people aren't driving their own cars. Um, They're more likely to be getting dropped off by an Uber or a Lyft. So I... I feel like, and, and, you know, I'm, maybe there's a generational shift coming, you know, with younger people who are now kind of used to a a world with TNCs, but I feel like the more radical idea in parking today is the idea that we should remove street parking altogether in downtown business districts. Is that a direction you think we should be moving in big urban centers? Well, and Lyft are really changing parking demand. And I think some folks also see it as kind of a canary in the coal mine for what to expect from potential different models of autonomous vehicles, should that should that um, be our future. And uh, has started to raise or expedite some of those policy questions. So I think in general, um, there are some wonderful examples of amazing streets that have removed street parking. Usually there's some remnant sort of freight access. So there are certainly sort of a, there's a globe of good examples of those. Um, I think the key to that is to not do it haphazardly and to do it as part of an overall strategy. So a lot of times we're asking a whole lot out of our streets, um, uh, vehicle traffic wise. And so I think once you start to have a strong strategy around which streets are are meant for what, you can really get into a comfortable place where you can make some big, exciting decisions like that. So, you know, figuring out which streets are best reserved for separated lanes for public transit, which need premium bike facilities, and then also, you know, which should really prioritize the human experience of having um, no vehicle interference. I do think that there's a lot of appetite for that. I think when you start to see some great public um, space projects open up and their tremendous uh, use and the, the excitement of people and having a space that's calm and separated from vehicle traffic and they get to let their guard down for a minute, that's a, a very popular, exciting experience. And so well-designed projects that can deliver that, um, I think, should absolutely be part of the conversation for how to prioritize street space and curb space. And when it comes to parking management, even separate from some of the Uber and Lyft trends that we're seeing, I think one of the big takeaways from SF Park and demand responsive pricing programs is that we need to realize it's not just about having as much parking as possible. It's about using what you have to the best of its efficiency. And so when you start to really realize that and use that as a tool, you realize that you can get more creative with some space and use parking policy rather than just extra supply to compensate for that and and make the whole system work well. Yeah, so... For cities that are considering um, 
maybe removing street parking on certain corridors, maybe in connection with protected mobility lanes and things like that. What are the steps that cities need to take in terms of the process? I think there's been kind of a lot of frustration in San Francisco around, you know, why does it take so long for SFMTA to implement various projects that, you know, maybe have been on its website for years and and that are approved. Uh, and so we see a lot of uh, criticism in the cycling community and and other folks saying, "Hey, what's why does it take so long if we want to make changes on the street?" Can you tell us a little bit um, about the process that cities go through to do something like removing uh, parking from a particular corridor? Sure, and I don't know the story behind every example like that in San Francisco, but it is a really common theme. And the truth is, is that the politics around allocating space and parking are really tough. And there are a lot of a whole mix of voices. So what I like to help folks do, my clients do, is to try to systematize that whole process and think, start from sort of what the goals are for the area. There are infinite ways to rearrange the curb space, to prioritize space, to design a parking system. So it's really important to know where you're trying to go before you start to move things around. So by strengthening kind of an understanding of what your goals are, I think it helps you walk through that decision making. And it does take a lot of political backing and executive backing to see through some of these tough projects. And on the parking side, um, I often am in the position of trying to help bridge those conversations between the reaction and aversion to removing any parking um, associated with a multimodal improvement like a protected bike lane. And so I think that's where the power of data and a sophisticated parking management approach is really important in a lot of these conversations. So like I said, a lot of cities may not know how much parking is there, and that makes it tough to not... um, it makes it tough when folks come to you and are really frustrated about removing a couple of spaces. Um, and I think once you're able to talk about how much parking there is elsewhere on the block, around the corner, and find solutions that tap the broader system, it helps you move forward in the conversation um, because parking really is one of the primary concerns in a lot of the most important sustainable transportation improvements that a lot of our our cities need right now. So you can't really separate the two. Um, so I always advocate for um, a strong sort of approach to parking management to supplement those discussions. And of course, given the increase in Uber and Lyft activity in a lot of our corridors, it's getting more and more important to really design all of our bike and pedestrian facilities to be safe from the extra loading activity that we're seeing. So making sure that bike lanes are protected and they're not subject to a lot of double parking or dooring, um, that's all an important piece of curb management. So it comes down to design priorities and um, really thinking about all the modes together. Yeah. How 
what what are some of the discussions that you've had to try to bridge the gap between business owners who think that street parking spots are key to their business and um, other sustainable transportation advocates who want to see perhaps more pickup and drop-off zones, uh, protected bike lanes, things like that. How, how do you bridge that gap, and what are some of the arguments that um, can be made with respect to um, business? I think it all comes down to good data. You know, once you can see how much parking there is nearby and what the other options are and connect the dots between overcoming some of those fears and really sit in a partnership seat, I think that can help. So, for example, um, I know that in, you know, in past experiences, I've seen a lot of objection to uh, a small number of bikes or excuse me, a small number of parking spaces getting removed for a bike lane. And what folks may not realize is that around the corner, there's a half-empty garage. Uh, let's say it's a public garage. Just improving awareness of that and creating promotional material to make people aware. Um, or if it's a private garage, taking a, a partnership approach to helping to allow and potentially even provide assistance to sharing park, sharing existing private parking. So I think it's important to have a lot of tools in the toolbox uh, around those conversations to overcome obstacles. But you also have to have great data to be able to compare benefits and really let that be in the driver's seat. And don't get me wrong, there's not always going to be perfect agreement. And so I think you know, there's no substitute for political spine and the willingness to make a change. The it's it's tough to I think there's a little bit of a risk aversion that can be tough to overcome. And so I think the more people that really participate in a in a productive way and help weigh the pros and cons can really help those conversations. But unfortunately it can often come down to a little bit of a shouting match. And so being willing to enter that fray and be a problem solver, it's really, it's really important. Great. Well, let's turn just briefly to the question of off-street parking, in particular, this idea of parking minimums that the requirements that cities um, historically have often put onto developers uh, or redevelopers uh, with respect to commercial and residential projects. Can you explain what the parking minimum requirements are and uh, what the recent criticisms of them have been from um, Professor Shoup and others? Sure. And this is another area that's seeing quite a bit of change lately, which I think is really exciting. So, the idea um, is that we have been, as city planners, you know, in our zoning codes, the vast majority of cities have had minimum parking requirements in place, uh, typically informed by the Institute for Traffic Engineers um, manual, the uh, parking generation manual, and often somewhat informed more by anecdote from peer cities than than um, much thoughtfulness and sort of designed from a place of fear 
as if the worst possible thing that a community could ever do would be to not provide a lot of extra parking. <laughs> and so there's certainly a lot of movement underway, of course, inspired by Dr. Shoup, to reconsider that paradigm. There have been a whole lot of negative impacts of parking minimums. And so a lot of cities are reconsidering. Um, they're getting rid of parking minimums or they're moving to lower them and seeing how that goes or to remove them in discrete areas around high capacity transit. So, um, and the, the problem with parking minimums is that they haven't been truly informed by sort of a, a 360 degree um, analysis of what their full impact is. And they're often assigned to be very excessive. So the whole, like, I think the paradigm shift now is to really think about what the context calls for, what the trade-offs are financially, and um, to, to really think through that number and ideally let the, you know, let the market decide what the right amount of spaces are and just to get rid of minimums. And I think that was important before and now as Uber and Lyft become more popular, uh, a lot of, that's sort of expediting the conversation. So the idea of a parking minimum was to say to a developer, like you're going to build an apartment building, you need to have, you, know, you need to build two parking spots for every apartment. And so that would drive up the cost of the apartment building and those costs would get passed on and then rent would be higher. And what you're saying is that that would be excessive because maybe not every apartment uh, was with, had tenants that actually needed two parking spots or something like that. So by requiring it rather than letting the market decide what was uh, needed, it, it sort of artificially created a lot of extra parking. Yes, that's a good summary. And the problem with that is that you've basically made it illegal to do anything except for provide a lot of parking. And, you know, that may be called for in some places, but there's certainly demand for different types of communities. And it doesn't leave much choice to folks who, who maybe don't need as many spaces, maybe a one car household. Um, un unfortunately, the position you're most often in in most cities is that you're paying for parking no matter what. So it's systematically created more spaces than developers would build on their own. If you have extra free parking, it promotes extra driving. And it's created a lot of wasted space, which is bad for walkability, bad for sustainability reasons. Um, in some cases, it's hindered small business. And, and you can imagine a scenario in which a small business is looking to open up shop on a retail corridor, maybe historically when it was first built, it didn't require parking. But if you have modern zoning codes in place, it's requiring uh, you know quite a number of spaces per you know barber chair or square foot or whatever the metric is, and therefore you know you can't find a space for it or it's too expensive to lease. It really raises the cost of opening a business. And also, you know, all of that space, if it's not necessary, it's really diluting a lot of the economic value in a particular area as well. You could have active uses that are, you know, generating taxes and sort of just a more productive use of space in general. So 
there's quite a full range of negative externalities for minimum parking requirements. And it just goes to show you that parking policy is one of the most important levers to get right, not just for transportation, but for urban design, for walk, for walkability, for public health. It's a it's an important policy to get right, and it's been a tough one for American cities. So I'm really hoping that the next few years we all continue to um, grow together and, and rethink some of these policies so that we can get a lot better outcomes moving forward. Yeah, I think I read in Shoup's work that in San Jose here in Silicon Valley that if you build a restaurant – the area required for parking that you have to build for parking is more than eight times larger than the dining area of the restaurant itself. <laughs> and uh, yeah. when, you, when, when you, you put it that way, you can really see how crazy it is. Yeah. And, you know, you made the point about walkability, and I, I don't think people necessarily understand this from a, a kind of an urban design perspective that and you can see this in places like downtown Los Angeles but if you're requiring these big parking lots around every store one it encourages things like malls and strip malls where you can put all the parking spots around it rather than the cute little walkable downtown shopping areas that most of us would probably prefer um but also it just there's so much space so much ugly kind of parking lot or parking garage space in between the commercial um outfits that it makes it hard to walk and i i never really thought about it until i you know read some of the literature but it really is true that you know sometimes you see a block in a city and you're like yeah i don't really want to walk down there because it's just all parking lots or garage fronts or things like that um and I didn't realize how much of that was actually required by city planners for developers. Yeah, it just goes to show you how important it is to make sure that your parking policies are lined up with your goals as a city. I think there's been a lot of, of disconnect on that front, and it's absolutely true. It impacts everything. And I think that there is reason for optimism. Um, I'm really excited to see that um, the 2019 ITE Parking Generation Manual kind of made a pretty big change and actually called for eliminating parking minimums. And this has been a source of a lot of the data informing minimums. So there's a little bit of a sea change underfoot, and I think it's a really important time to um, continue to get this right and spread these good ideas. Um, they, it may not be the most fun way to, um, you know, tackle public policy <laughs> to talk about parking, but it's, it's hugely um Central, you know, central to some of our conversations around uh, sustainability as well. Um, you just can't really find a more impactful policy. And so I'd love to see more cities look at removing parking minimums or reducing them to the extent that it makes sense in, in different contexts and rethinking some of the incentives we're sending. I think parking is also shockingly expensive to provide. I know before I got into this field, I thought of it as just dead space that was sitting there and free and how, you know, how, how complicated could that be? But in reality, the construction costs, the land costs, and then the ongoing maintenance costs, operations costs are really high. <laughs> and so it's not just a matter of, of um, you know, let's have as much as we can. There are very real trade-offs to be made. And so I think it's, it's not about having a one-size-fits-all approach, but 
you really have to have the conversation. And so, for example, with um, some corporate campuses or college or university campuses, um, it's really helpful to compare the cost of building a new parking deck or lot with the cost of doing things like investing in um, a van pool, carpool uh, program, subsidizing transit, improving the frequency of transit in the area. So it makes it a little bit more complicated, but I think it's important to also have parking conversations um, that compare and contrast your options so that we're making informed decisions about how much to spend on parking versus our other goals. I also think it really impacts things like housing in ways that, you know, a lot of us probably didn't really appreciate, you know, especially in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, there's this real housing crisis with, you know, affordability being really difficult. And when you look at these um, huge uh, corporate campuses or um, uh, office parks down in Silicon Valley, you know, you might have this office building with just vast amounts of parking lots around it. And you think, okay, if you just let them get rid of some of those spots, if they weren't required to maintain those as parking spots, they could actually make a lot more money and, and probably help renters if they put up some apartment buildings around the edges of those to increase housing and have, as you say, like a better, more productive use of the land. Um, Are you seeing any discussions about people kind of trying to rectify the situation and convert existing parking into housing or other more productive space? Yes, I think the the really unfortunate housing crisis, crises that a lot of our cities are facing right now has, has made a broad call for all solutions. And what you described is absolutely true, that it may not be very obvious to us, but um, requiring a lot of free parking has systematically increased the cost of housing and, and other goods. And on the housing front, that's particularly egregious these days. So um, you're starting to see, for example, um, cities might start with uh, reducing parking minimums on affordable housing and starting there. But I would say the relationship overall is absolutely becoming more concrete for a lot of policymakers. And uh, hopefully we can continue to see a little bit better tune-up between those. Um, I think there's nothing worse than being in a city that doesn't have space to provide any housing that's reasonably priced (laughs) and you see vast garages and lots. And not to say that there shouldn't be some, but when it's sitting there unused or underpriced, mismanaged, it's it's a tough pill to take. And I think it, it's uh, time to, to rethink that relationship. There are also a couple of other parking policies that have been impactful in this, in this realm. Um, unbundling parking is sort of an interim step or complementary step. And the idea there is that the price you pay for your parking space would be separate from the rent you're paying. And therefore, it gives you um, more options for what you choose to invest in. Whereas the default in most communities now is that you're paying for parking no matter what. So that's a nice policy measure as well. And then some employers, particularly in California, 
um, have implemented parking cash out where you're trying to basically reverse some of the unfortunate incentives that have been baked in. <laughs> the idea there is that um, if you're providing free parking to your employee, employees, that you also have an equivalent cash option for those who don't take you up on it. So there are different policy angles depending on the land use type and environment, but the overall idea here is to make sure that we're not just incentivizing people to drive unnecessarily and just let people have a little bit more of a choice in their actions and to not pass the cost on to everybody regardless of use. Great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Uh, I really enjoyed it. That was a, a great discussion and very educational for all of us to learn about parking policy. Thanks again. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, it's a surprisingly interesting topic, and I hope we keep talking about it because there's a lot of work to be done. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks. Thanks again to Lauren for joining us. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find the show notes for this episode and all of our episodes on our Medium publication called Smarter Cars. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.